Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. This is Andrew Olson. I've got Roy Jones with me. Roy, how are you? Hey, very good. This is going to be a good one, Andrew. I'm telling you, people want to stay on for this. Tell them the title. Yeah, they're going to want to stay on, although I'm not sure they're going to want to admit it. We are going to talk about nonprofit F-words today. So uh, <laughs> we, we've got some, some great guests with us today. In fact, this is maybe only the second or third time we've had two guests on the show at the same time. So I want to welcome Ashley Niddle and Rachel Minnick to, uh, to the show. Ashley is Director of Communications at Pro Youth and Families. And Rachel is the Youth and Family Co- Collective Director at Pro Youth and Families. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, um, nonprofit F words. And for, for those of you who are like trying to shoot your kids out of the room right now because you're afraid of what we're going to say, it's not that F word. Um, I promise you it won't be that F word. But um, we are going to get into some controversial uh, conversations here. Before we do that, uh, Ashley and Rachel, do you want to just each take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourselves, your background, and the work that you do? Sure. Yeah. So I've worked for Pro Youth and Families for 17 years. So I've really grown up in the nonprofit field. Um, but Pro has a really been a great place to work. Our CEO, Stacey Anderson, is really innovative, always kind of pushing the limit. And what I love to say is that we don't know where our ceiling is. So it's a great place to be. Um, and what we do at Pro is uh, we believe um, that you know young people deserve opportunities that inspire hope. And so we create pro we um, invest our time into programs like Youth at City Council and peer-to-peer mentoring. So it's really a great space to be and a great teammate, uh, especially right here with Rachel. Yeah. And so I I like to describe myself as a recovering nonprofit executive director. Um, I still have trauma from fundraising, so this podcast might be emotional for me. Uh, I was the executive director of a nonprofit reading partners, uh, and I ran the Sacramento, California branch for about five years. But while I was doing that, I really had this kind of um, realization that things just needed to be done differently. The way we raise money, the way we innovate in nonprofit, um, just the whole mindset was broken. And I found a a very um, supportive peer in our current, our CEO, Stacey Anderson, that Ashley mentioned, who had already started bringing people together going, you guys, we've got to do it differently. We've got to figure this thing out. We, we can't keep going to the same people, asking for money, getting the same results. As we all know, that is the definition of insanity. So some funding came along from the city of Sacramento. COVID hit. Um, my organization was not able to survive. Uh, the pandemic because we really weren't innovative, sorry to say. And Stacy brought me on board to try to really figure out how do we bring collaborative projects to to fruition? How do we bring organizations together? And how do we bring in more money? Not the same money, new money and more of it. And now I'm drowning <laughs> in a good way in projects. So it's really, really cool. 
Awesome. Roy, I've, I've never heard anybody say that this industry, um, you know, does things always the same way and, and is, you know, <laughs> n- never figures it out differently. I, I don't know. Have you heard that before? <laughs> I think I have. It's so, going to be a fun, fun broadcast today. So, <laughs> Ashley, you and I started this conversation over LinkedIn. And I'll just say, listeners, if you're not connected with Ashley and Rachel or Roy and I, if you're not following, jump over to LinkedIn right now and go do that. We'd love to connect with you and, and be able to start a conversation with you as well. But but we started this in LinkedIn and uh, we knew it was going to be a bit controversial, um, especially with a title like nonprofit F-words. Um, but again, like that's not probably what, what people are thinking. Maybe they are, who knows? Uh, the, the first F-word, if you will, that I want to start us in on is fair compensation. And I think there are probably people right now pausing and, and muting their their um, their audio and going, oh, thank God they're going to talk about this. I'm so tired of not being paid what I'm worth. Um, but so ladies, talk to us about this. Like, what are you seeing right now across the sector related to comp? And I'm particularly curious to see and to hear what you what you think is changing or isn't given the landscape today of, of how hard it is to find talent and how just how weird the whole talent market is behaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think just to look backward for a long time, it, it felt totally taboo to talk about it. Like you don't, if you're a nonprofit, you don't talk about what you get paid. You just don't, you just accept it. And it was kind of like the idea of just shut up and do the good work, mm-hmm. you know, just, just keep plugging away. And so what's really exciting to me, I think that we really felt Rachel and I, at least through the past few years, where we're at is that the game is changing a little. We are, people are learning to really assert themselves and say, you know what? This is good and powerful, meaningful work. We're professionals at it. Let's start acting like it and let's act, you know, let's ask to be compensated in that way. So I think that people are getting better about talking about it. I think that's exciting. I think that funders are getting a little more comfortable with it, not even close to being where where we should be. Um, but but I think we're making progress in that area. Rach, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's always the challenge of having enough funding to pay people what they're worth. We know that's just a an ongoing conundrum that I think will probably plague us forever and probably plagues lots of businesses. Um, but I think what we saw with the pandemic is that some organizations, um, their relationships with their funders did kind of improve in a way because they had a little bit more of an innovative mindset with COVID hitting, like we've got to do things differently. We can't lose people. So I did see a little bit more of a willingness to pay for people than I have in the past. Um, But I think, you know, big picture, I think nonprofits need to really think about compensation as a total package, not just the money that you get, the type of environment, you know, the F in flexibility, that's another F word that um, nonprofits can could embrace a little better than they do. Um, because if you can't offer more dollars, what else can you offer? Can you offer flexibility? Can you walk, offer hybrid working environments? Can you provide people with more autonomy to be able to manage their friends, their family, their dog, whatever it is? And I think we still are pushing on that idea of what real work is and getting away from this idea of where you do your work. So for some people, it doesn't, you have to do your work in a certain place. But if you don't, why are you continuing to push um, back on flexibility? So I think there's fair compensation, but there's also other things that nonprofits can do to innovate, to offer something that 
you know, maybe they're not seeing in other industries or seeing in other places. So that's, that's my take on it. Rachel, you touched on something. You mentioned what the funders think. It's interesting. You implied there that you actually have conversations uh, about compensation with, with funders. Uh, I would assume that means your board members in some case. And of course, Ashley talked about having bold conversations with, with CEOs and senior staff. But uh, what role does everybody play? It, it, it is a new day when we can talk about this and people begin to see, especially with the development staff, that uh, discussing compensation, you know, it is, it, it's an investment center. It's a revenue center. It's not a cost center. Mm-hmm. Especially when it pertains to development staff, mm-hmm. but talk to me about the role that that uh, CEOs, funders, and in uh, boards play in in these decisions. There's so much. Ash, do you want to touch this one, or would you like? Well, me? yeah, I, mean, I can start, and then you know they're the front lines. You know we're we're advocating. You know in the circles we're in, but then they're in different spaces. You know we're we're all kind of doing our best in our spheres. But they're in these totally different spaces, especially these board members who are working in, you know, all different types of contexts. And so we really rely on the way that they are willing to speak and advocate for us um, to kind of do that work, to kind of do that. And that's hard work to be able to say, look at the work that they're doing. Look at the professionalism that they're working, uh, you know, that they're displaying. Look at the innovation that 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 they're doing. You know, it's not just high tech companies who are being innovative; it's nonprofits too. And so, if we can have people on our team, these board members, these these CEOs, to be out there, you know, these other spaces advocating for us, I mean, that's gold. Yeah, I think there's there's so much. Oh gosh, this is such a deep topic, but the 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 bottom line is we need more funding and we need unrestricted funding within organizations. Organizations need to be trusted in order to um, to do the work the way they know it needs to be done. And the way that happens is how you staff your team. And so I think we need to be very uncompromising with just we would never ask somebody to run a, a for profit business forever with no staff just because they're passionate about Apple computers or whatever. We would never ask, you know, somebody to do that. But we get played in the nonprofit field because we do it because we care because we love because many of my community partners will, will do it anyway. They're going to do the work anyway. And so they're exploited because they say that. And I often say like, yeah, you would, but don't tell anybody <laughs> that you, you deserve to get paid. So we have to roll back some of our rhetoric a little bit that we're just these, you know, gold-hearted do-gooders who would do it anyway. So why should we pay for their staff if they were going to do it anyway? So we have to stop talking that way to anyone who will listen. I think our board, like I'll give pros board so many props. They are, they would, they don't fall for that junk because they have Stacy as their CEO. So they know that she's out there pushing for flexible funding, all these different things that we need in order to run smoothly as nonprofits and be treated as actual businesses with the respect that we deserve. So I think we have to start. That's like the first thing we have to do. I don't want to blame the victim. It's not that. But if we show up to the table and we don't own who we are and what we need to do our work, then funders never know. They don't really even know what we need if we don't tell the truth, which I know is a later question that you are getting toward. But that was the thing that I 
was thinking about was so often we're so scared to lose the money. We're so scared to alienate a funder that we're like, uh huh, yeah, that's enough money for me. And you go back and you look at your budget and you know it's not, but you're scared to lose that little bit you have. So we have to step up. We have to step up first before we ask others to do the same. Yeah, I think yeah, that goes back know, part to that, of that whole. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Andrew. So I was going to say part of that, you know, is, you know, being, being truth tellers, right? And then, you know, going back to with this, you know, this new generation, how are we uh, recruiting? How are we retaining? And it's, you know, we're talking about, we got to be upfront about what we can offer. Like, like you're saying that, that full package. And we, and this is part of equity, right? Like from the top, they need to know what to expect and have that honest conversation. So yeah, this is a new day and age for, uh, you know, bringing new people in, retaining them. And like you said, Rach, we have to start talking differently. So actually, that's a really good point. That feeds into my next question, which is about pay transparency, right? So, uh, you know, I run a, a marketing company that serves nonprofits. Uh, and uh, a year and a half ago-ish, when when I uh, took this company over, one of the first things that we did as we started recruiting new talent was we said, you know what, We're, it's no longer uh, going to be acceptable for us to put out a, a job description into the market and say, you know, compensation dependent on experience. We're, we're going to start saying, you know, this is what the salary range is for this position. And so our HR team knows that we won't post a single job description in the market without that, right? And, and, and I know there are others doing that, but I don't think there are enough. Talk to me about what you're seeing, what are you all doing, and, and, and where do you think we need to head in that respect? Post the salary is just hashtag post the salary because you you absolutely hit the nail on the head. The research shows around equity that many people who are traditionally paid less accept less. They don't negotiate as strongly for themselves. And so you've got to post a salary because nothing's worse than going through a whole interview process. You love the job. And then they're like, guess what? The pay is $35,000 a year you know, master's degree required and it's, you can't live on that. You can't. So kudos to you guys for putting your salaries. That is something I continue to push for in our organization. We're not all the way where we need to be um, in some respects. So I think there's a lot of tradition around not posting because then you can negotiate, you know, less and your budget is better off because you're paying less, but it, it's just, that day has passed, that transparency needs to be there. And we need to start. I mean, imagine that's, if that's how you start with employees where we're open, we share, we're transparent, that can continue through your relationship with that person who comes into your organization. So that's the biggest thing. And I still see a lot of job postings that do not post the salary. I think that is a huge, huge, huge push. If you're listening to this and you don't post your salary, please have a change of heart, do it, try it and see what happens. The world will not fall down. Did your world fall down, Andrew? Like Andrew, when you start posting the salary, did the world fall down? No, we actually, I I think we've uh, attracted some of the best talent in the marketplace because of it. That's louder for the people in the back because that is really, really interesting insight and important insight for sure. Yeah. What, what I what I love about this too, though, is that it, it causes your your internal organization to have these discussions of like, well, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. I'm not sure it's not how we've done it. 
but we have to have those uncomfortable conversations. Like this is just one area. And if we as as an organization can become comfortable having those uncomfortable conversations, we're going to be that much stronger in all these areas. So that's one part of this that I love is that we are just building, you know, our our own kind of, um, you know, tool toolbox of of strengthening our ability to have these conversations. Yeah, you're so right. We do we do have uncomfortable conversations we sometimes. Do. But you're, if you don't have those internally, you can't get to that place where you can have transparency with yeah. your whole team if you don't have it within your leadership. For sure. I, you two are going to have to come back for a second episode on uncomfortable conversations because Roy, Roy and yes. I bang our heads against the wall every week. when we, we, We'll talk to an organization and say, well, you know, we, we can identify exactly what their challenges are, but they're just not willing to talk about them in their four walls, you know? So that's a whole different conversation though. I, I, I do want to move on to the next, uh, the next F word, um, which Rachel, you alluded to a couple of times, uh, which is funders. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious to hear your perspective on how the expectations of funders have changed over the last couple of years with the COVID dynamic, with some of the other transparency issues that are going on. And I'm, I'm particularly curious to hear, um, what you think about, and, and if, you, if you're involved in any of these conversations, sort of about how the idea of community-centered fundraising is changing the narrative with funders and how organizations are engaging with them. What, what do y'all think? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I need to write a book, basically, about this. Um, okay. My gosh. We, we might know the, some folks who could help you with that. Yeah, I think that, you know, the the... The gift of COVID, and I i mean no disrespect because COVID was not a gift, um, and to many of our communities, it was a death sentence. So, But um, what I will say about COVID is that it people just had to move quickly and make funding decisions quickly and had to fund things that were different and do it fast. And I saw it happen. And so what it told me was that it's possible to fund new ideas. Uh, to fund innovative ideas, to fund pilots and fund experimental ideas. And really so much of what happens in nonprofit and what funders expect is this fully baked plan with impact measures, um, oftentimes for programs that have never actually launched because funders like a lot of new things from time to time. And there's new things are great, but um, really what we should be doing is following a more Clean impact model where we test out an idea in its most um, minimal form to see what works and then iterate from there. And I would love to see more funders take that on and engage with nonprofits who are like, I have this idea. My thing is I always love when people say, I have a crazy idea. I'm like, let's let's talk about that because I love crazy ideas. Because there's always a grain of something super important in that. And so I would love to see more of that. And I think my fear is that that will stop as we kind of go back to normal, which normal was not good. And we keep thinking going back to normal is this like, yeah, it's not good. I'm worried that that's going to go away. But I, yeah. I would hope that funders would be more tolerant of an experimental agenda, a pilot agenda, a learning agenda. And really, instead of focusing only on outcomes, or impact measures, focus on what was learned, what what changed 
in the process of doing this project that I funded, um, you know, what did you learn? Nonprofit, what changed? Um, what would you do differently and what wouldn't you? And the best funders I've worked with have been those funders who've said, how's it going? And I've freaked out and then said, we're not meeting our numbers. Here's why I think this is happening. And I've had a funder and I'm going to call them out, uh, Golden One Credit Union here in Sacramento. They were a funder and they were like, "What? how can we help you? And they actually paid for a staff person to come in and support tutoring for the students because we couldn't find enough volunteers. And I was like, what? Oh my goodness. They want to help me. They don't, they're not just going to cut me off. So that's the kind of stuff, like having that honest conversation of how are you doing? You're not doing great. That's okay. Let's talk about it. How can we help you? What can we do differently? So I think that there's, um, there just needs to be more honesty on all sides and a little humility. Um, I think in the change that power balance where just because you have money doesn't mean you should be deciding everything. There has to be more trust in there, which I know I'm not saying anything that nobody has, you know, not thought about before, but that's kind of my take on it. On a, on a practical level, Rachel and Ashley, uh, both of you could answer this, but how do those conversations take place? Is it a phone conversation? Is it a face-to-face meeting? Is it an email exchange? Is it a combination of all the above? How does that happen? How do you get to that level of intimacy with a funder uh, where you can open up and, and really and really share your pain? Yeah, I would say in that previous example, it actually just came through the like end of year report that I had to do. And I turned it in and just was kind of, I, you know, just turned it in via email. It was an online form that I had to do. And I just kind of gritted my teeth like, oh, I don't, this is not going to go. Oh, this looks so bad. It's just, I'm just so embarrassed. And they actually emailed me back and were like, we have some ideas about how to help you. And I went, okay, this isn't going to be good. And then we had a phone conversation. They're like, well, what if we funded this for you? Would that help you? And it was, but I was terrified. I was terrified that that phone call was going to be, you know, this is, we're going to get you through this cycle, but then I don't know if it's going to work out for the future. So that was a phone, just an honest phone conversation. But I had also developed a relationship with this organization over a couple of years. And they had leadership that was pretty forward thinking in many ways. So their program officers really embodied that same mindset. So it was like, okay, I feel like I can actually talk to you. But um, in other cases, it's, you know, it's just, you're almost afraid to ask any questions. You're afraid to reach out even by email right. um, without, cause you don't want to look foolish or like, you don't know what you're doing or you're, you know, you're running a junky organization that can't get anything done. And all of us have that fear. Maybe not all of us, but I certainly did that. So, so you know, you, I'm an imposter. So you've got a relationship in place. Yeah. Um, owning email is a good forum to have these kind of honest. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, and with yes. COVID, uh, you know, I think it's forced us all to use the phone a lot more than uh, than, than we prefer to do. Yeah, uh, people people gravitate to the phone right now because it does it does feel a little bit more personal, um, and you can have some deeper conversations. Yeah. You know what? I, what I love about that example too, Rachel, is you know, we talk about the idea of invest what you believe in, and so when you have you know that as an example, you know that golden one believes in this work and they believe like in your ability to to adapt adjust and make those changes and so to me that speaks when you get to the heart of the funder of you know what's what's their why you see that they are truly invested not just with their money 
But that really is what uh, they want to invest their resources, their time, their effort into. And that takes it to a whole other, whole other level where you can have that kind of relationship. And then something that we talk about, which is what you did there, Rachel, is the idea of connectedness and how really the core of everything we do, everything, internal, external, really is based on, on that connectedness and building that. And I think that's a beautiful example of that, Rachel. Yeah. With our partnerships in the, the Youth and Family Collective, our goal is always to support the organization there. So we subcontract with lots of organizations and a lot of times funders want to go just directly to the youth that are, that are benefiting from the program or the animals or, you know, whatever the, whatever the, um, you know, the work is that that nonprofit is doing, funders want to go directly to that and don't really think about the health of the organization that needs to deliver those services. And so I always come back to, I, I always have my little pyramid I'm a big Star Wars fan. So my thing is, this is the way the youth are at the top or the animals or whoever. But at the bottom is the support of that organization that is doing that work. And so I try to reframe conversations from our big funders of, yes, we care about the youth. Yes, we care about that. But we really want to invest and support the organization, the people in that organization how are they doing? How can we help them? So we provide lots of resources for data collection and just, you know, administrative forms, you know, just things like that. And my things, there's no dumb question. Please reach out to me. We reach out to them. We go to their events. We, you know, we engage kind of like a nonprofit and a funder at times, but we really try to keep the relationship going and we try to be proactive with it. That's what I tell my team. Like, don't wait for them to reach out to you reach out to, the, to them, check on them, see how they're doing. Because if you only do that when you need a report, it's scary. It's super scary. It's like when you never hear from your kid's teacher until your kid messes up and then you're like, oh my God, I got a call from the teacher. This is bad. It's the same thing. Um, if you get a call from your funder and you don't have a relationship, it's super scary. Um, or you feel like you're butting in and you shouldn't be asking them too many questions or they'll say no calls or no, you know, no emails. But I would love to see a little bit more um, just proactive engagement with organizations so that it it turns the heat down a little bit on that, that power imbalance and that fear. And you actually get to know each other as people uh, yeah. versus just, oh, they're from this organization and this is the project that they're doing um, that we funded. And you don't know much about the people. It's really, it becomes very transactional. It's so kind of like... It's kind of like, if, you know, if you and your boss only talked about your performance once a year in your annual review, right? Yes. It would be, it would be really scary to walk in there on, you know, day 364 or whatever to, to get that feedback because you're like, well, crap, what did I do three months ago that she didn't like, you know? Or Whereas yeah. if, if you're actively engaged in discussion and there's, you know, there's sort of ongoing coaching, you can learn from it and, and adapt to it and improve without it being some threatening, you know, performance evaluation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you feel very measured and judged versus being able to have real honest conversations about the work that you're doing um, and giving feedback to um, to funders about their process. One of the things I'm most proud of is, uh, <laughs> this is hard, but I did an application for, it was about a $10,000 grant and it was literally like a 35 page wow. application, grant application. And so, they so wanted, cost, so it cost you $10,000 to get the $10,000 gift. 
So if I was paid at a fair rate, <laughs> yes, that would be true. Um, but it was such a long, few of those. <laughs> if I was paid equitably, yes. But anyway, this this or this application was just so big and you had to attach it to an email. It was so big that my email program would not allow me to attach such a big file. So I, I'm spending all this time trying to like reduce the file size and, you know, change everything and make sure I met all the word counts. And then of course, you know what happened. We did not get funded. Of course we did not get funded. And uh, one of the people who was on the grant committee actually reached out to me and was like, I'm so sorry that you didn't get funded and we love your organization, but you know, you know, the same things you, you do great work, but there's only so many people we can fund. And she's like, how was the process? And I was like, Oh, Oh, you just opened a door for me to say, this is really extraordinarily cumbersome for the amount of money that you're able to grant. And that's no disrespect to the amount of money you can grant, but yeah. they should be um, somewhat, there should be some parity. And if it's this much, you can ask for maybe more, but if it's this much, you can't ask for so much. And we're an organization that has a few more resources and I have a little more experience if you were a new organization, you would be just SOL, you know, you just would not be in a good spot. So it's just, I appreciated that she asked though. And then when we reapplied the next year, the process was completely different. It was like so much better, so much better. And she said, is it better this year? And I said, yeah, it's so much better. And we got funded and I was so scared. I wouldn't get funded because I told them their process sucked. And but we, she listened and I was transparent and I was like, oh my God, I'm probably never going to get funded by this group ever. But at least I said what I had to say. Maybe I helped save somebody else from that, you know, in the future. But anyway, I felt it was like this brave moment of, oh, I'm just going to tell her the truth. This was horrible. It was one of the worst grants I've <laughs> ever had to do. Well, you know, on this topic of funder, um, expectations and what what funders needs are kind of brings up another f word uh fringe benefits you know what what is the funder looking for and i always preach and teach that uh that uh, getting uh, funders to give to a particular charity or cause is not about the charity or cause but it's about the funder you know what are their priorities and what are their objectives and what are they looking for from the relationship what do you think uh funders are looking for? What are the benefits of, you know, whether it's a corporate foundation, whether it's a traditional grant making foundation, whether it's a, a major donor, an individual um, um, that, that, that does five figure, six figure gifts, um, you know, what are they looking for uh, in, in, in that relationship? And, uh, and what are the benefits to them of giving? That's a good question. Rachel has more experience on this, but I'll start. I think from a surface level, it's give us that that punch, that immediate impact. What is that punch? Hit us hard with it. And then what are the optics? Because we want to be able to show that off. Those aren't bad things. I mean, we want those too. Of course, as Rachel alluded to earlier, there's a whole process. There's a whole team behind this. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. And that's that's part of this too. And so um, where, where I get that they want that punch, that impact, there's so much behind it that is really rich and that helps tell the story. And I think um, it would be nice to have more opportunities to put that at the forefront too. Um, just some, some surface thoughts there. 
Yeah, I think it's important to understand the motivation for the gift. Um, and again, that's part of the relationship piece. Um, I think the more you get to know a foundation or just an individual donor, the more you get to know their motivation because they, they have so many choices. <clears throat> they have so many choices of who they could donate to. So why did they pick you? <laughs> so oftentimes, and that's a question I like to ask was, how did you come to this decision or what? why is this cause so important to you? And I know that's kind of fundraising 101 where you're like, let me butter them up by asking them about them. Uh, But it's really more, I think to what Ashley said earlier, the connectedness, that sense of belonging that I think including your donors in everything that you're doing. So if you're having an event and I, and it might be one where you're like, this is a community fair (laughs) where this event really isn't for them but you want them to see what you're doing. I think we have to be a little more proactive in our field by sharing information up front. Share, just Then I think it takes away some of the like, oh, did we get the logo right? Um, did we mention their name three times during our, you know, our dinner? Did we do this? I don't know how much a lot of donors even really care about that in the big picture. I think maybe their communications person put together some package and is like, we got to get, you know, this and this and this out of this. But I think really a lot of times the folks who are writing the checks in the big picture um, don't necessarily care about the logo. Maybe some do, but I think they want to be included. I think they want to be included and I think they want to be known. Um, One of my most frustrating moments sometimes is when we're working on a project and I haven't done a good job of letting my team know where this money is coming from. And so when they know and they're talking to people about a project we do, they'll say, this is funded by the city of Sacramento. They're really committed to youth development, whatever it is. But if we don't turn around and kind of tell our staff, this is who donates. These are their kind of their big causes. This is the stuff that they do, what they care about. It's we don't do a great job of uplifting them within our own organization sometimes because we just get busy. So I think there's just that need to include, you know, just that need to, to uplift in that way. I don't, I think, I think funders sometimes get a bad rap that they're really superficial and they only care about their name on a building or whatever. I think if that's your motivation only, you know, we still appreciate your donation. (laughs) We'll work with you, of course. But, um, but I think that's a self-reflection for some people who are writing the checks is, am I getting too prescriptive? Am I asking for like just the moon and the stars when it becomes about me versus about the actual cause? But, you know, in the end, people's motivations to give are what they are. We don't control those. So I think it's, it's just about that connectedness and belonging and relationships. I think, you know, that's really at the core of everything is not being scared to invite them to something, not being scared to just send them some pictures, send them a video of stuff that kids are doing, send them a quote of something one of your participants said that you think, you know, really demonstrates how strong this programming is. And it's there because of their funding. Being proactive, I think is huge. And I think it eliminates some of that hierarchical junk that gets in the way sometimes. I think, you know, so I mean, for us, our most consistent, you know, individual donors are the ones who, you know, they started donating and because they had the relationship, like literally a one-on-one relationship with someone on the team. And so the beauty in that is that that's consistency. That's, that's what we believe in the core of the connectedness. 
Um, but then also, you know, just like Rachel's saying, when we really, when they are seen, when they feel seen, I mean, how important that is, whatever that looks like. You know, we had a 40th anniversary last fall and we invited some of these donors, you know, would you mind if we interviewed you and, you know, just to talk about what this organization means to you or what your priorities are? I mean, they were on board and what they said was powerful and mm-hmm. and they know that we saw them and that we care and that we appreciate what they've done. And so that spirit of gratitude really is a two-way street. You know, they're appreciative of what we do. And of course, we're appreciative of what they're bringing to the table with with their time and talent, you know, and treasure. So so that's interesting. I, I And I think you're right. The, that sort of two-way street of gratitude makes a lot of sense. I, I'm curious, though, I, I hear a lot in our sector right now about this idea that, you know, uh, funders ask for too much. They want they want too much um, and, and that we should be pushing back because it's inappropriate. Right. And I think certainly if a funder comes to you and says, we want you to change the way that you're delivering on mission, if we give you this gift, you know, if it if it goes against what you're doing, um, then I, absolutely you should push back on that. But but I from where I sit, you know, it sounds bad, but I kind of I, I kind of think of myself as a you know a fundraising mercenary. Right. I, I, I don't have to have the same. Um, you know, expectations that you all do because I don't sit in your seat and, and do the mission work every day. People hire me just to make sure dollars come in the door, right? So, so when I look at this, I, I, I always struggle with how do we balance raising the absolute most money possible to put towards mission? Because at the end of the day, I can't spend a good feeling that I'm being, you know, pure to the mission, right? I can spend net dollars, Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how do you, as, as the, you know, those tasked with delivering mission balance, raising the most money possible to deliver on mission and keeping that purity of mission and not having donor wants and needs bleed over into how you deliver mission? Like, how do you thread that needle? I, I think we have to be a little bit more proactive in the ways that we can acknowledge donors. I think a lot of times we don't know. Um, and so we don't necessarily, so we wait for them to tell us, okay, well, I would like to, you know, have two minutes on stage during your gala. And I would like to have my logo on your brochure, or I'd like to have this on the building. We wait for them to tell us what, what they want instead of us being more proactive. And a lot of times there's not even space on an application to even do that. So, uh, you know, so that's a, that's a whole different story. But I think we have to be more aware of ways that we can include and support donors in the work that we're already doing. And I think we do need to be honest sometimes about what we can't deliver on um, because we do. I've turned myself into a pretzel more than once in order to you know, ensure that the logo was in a place where it just looked crazy. To be perfectly honest, it's like this doesn't go here, but this was the expectation as we put a logo of this many pixels on this thing and it looks silly, but here we are. Um, and I feel like I should have been prepared to say, let's figure out a way to get to what you want, but something that's mutually agreed upon. And it, it just takes courage and guts, you know, to be to push back on a funder. I think so many of us are just so afraid that we will lose the very small amount of money we have 
if we're mm-hmm. too demanding, if we're too picky, if we're too um, self-possessed about what we want. And what I found is it's actually the opposite is mm-hmm. when you do come to the table, like, nope, this is what we need. This is what's really going to work for us. We want you to get recognition. Here's where we think it would be in a better spot. They might still say no, but at least they know that you have some guts behind you, that you're not, you know, you're not a baby who just gets pushed around. And in fact, you get more respect and more recognition and more seats at the table if you are a little pushy, which I think as as an organization can be hard to do. But I really encourage people to speak up, you know, speak up, just be honest about if it's lame, tell people they don't know if we don't tell them. They're going to keep asking for these same things. And a lot of times what they're asking for is just rote. They probably pulled it from something on the internet of like, what kind of benefits do we want to ask for from our grantees? Sometimes they don't even care that much about them. They're just things that are like, we're supposed to ask for something, I guess. And a lot of times I found it's not as um, set in stone as you might think it needs to be. Yeah, you know, that's Rich, true. what I love about that too, and especially since, you know, 2020 is that when we show up as business people with business people, you're right. There's like, you've elevated the conversation because they see that we're not just going to sit back and do the good work because it feels good, but we have an opinion and we are going to assert that we have experience behind it and, and it's worthy of being heard. Yeah. So and, we, that- and we demand respect, like we respect and we give respect, but we also deserve and demand respect. And we've been doing this work a long time as all most organizations are. They didn't, they didn't come to the table just to, you know, live on compliments and air. They need money. They need like real stuff to run their business. These are business organizations. And, you know, we've had people in our community say, you know, what do nonprofits know about workforce development? What do they know about business (laughs) development? And I'm just like, come again with that ridiculous comment. They are businesses. They did, people didn't apply for the COVID relief funds that went to businesses because not a lot of nonprofits didn't realize that they qualified for those funds. It's, yeah. It was kind of mind-numbing at times, how well, frustrating and how disrespectful it can be. So you got to come to the table like, no, we are a small business or we are a large business. What I love about what you both just said is it, it comes down to you didn't show up with hat in hand with a poverty mentality, right? You said, yes, we have something of value to provide. And if you'd like to access it, here's the expectation, right? And I think that's a really smart way to approach it. Yep. yep. Love it. And especially, you know, we talk about, you know, the idea, this is really important that people have the understanding of, you know, historically, like the savior mentality, and that is not okay, right? Like, and we're not, we're not going in there either. Like, we know what we're doing, and we're going to save the world. No, we're part of our community. And this is what our community values, and we're here for it. Are you? Yeah, love that. All right, Roy, let's get into our last F word for the day. Um, and it's one that uh, that you know, I'm partial to. I think you are, too. That is uh, fundraising. I like how you just uh, paused. <laughs> <laughs> Big fundraising. That's what we're all here for. But... I mean, what are what are mistakes that you're seeing out there with the industry? We've touched on it some a uh, couple times already in this conversation, but but what are you seeing? Uh, are you seeing uh, common mistakes among nonprofits uh, in how they're 
doing fundraising, how they're approaching fundraising. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, the grant making process in this conversation, but of course, there's direct response fundraising um, um, and, and, and middle donor, major donor fundraising, um, and, you know, and then the, the more uh, funder uh, grant application process. But, but when you look at it all, what are some of the things, trends you're seeing? And uh, what are what are mistakes people are making now? I have some really technical ones, but if and I know this is probably going out to people in different states, so there might be different requirements within your state. But make sure that all of your nonprofit business statuses, you know, if you need to be in good compliance with your attorney general, with your secretary of state, with the IRS, please, before you do anything, Check those statuses. Make sure your taxes have been done. I know it sounds like really, really patronizing, and I don't mean it that way at all. Uh, but a lot of times folks who are doing the work um, don't always know all of the different things that their state um, or their county or whoever requires um, in order to get certain types of funding. And so, unfortunately, I've seen small organizations just get completely kicked out of a process in, before they even make it to the stage where you can look at what they do because they don't pass those basic screenings. So I would just say like, get your house in order in that way. Um, whether you're small and you're just filing your, you know, your postcard, cause you are, have a, a smaller number of gross receipts for your organization. Um, doesn't matter big or small. If you've gone to the trouble of getting your 501c3 status and you've got your determination letter, make sure you follow through with whatever your local state or county or community jurisdictions are so that you don't get kicked out of the process. And it's just that first level of professionalism that if you're going to run a nonprofit and you're going to run a business and we're going to come to the table and say nonprofits are real businesses, we have to act like it. And so if we don't do, you know, you, if you saw somebody had a no business license or you went to a restaurant and their, you know, their rating on the door was D for, you know, health and safety, you might go, mm, Oh, come on, we'd order, we'd order the sushi there. You do. You're like, I'm going for it. Uh, so I think that's the first thing is just ma maintaining those basic compliances are huge. Um, keeping your books clean, just all of those things that you need as you, if you plan to grow, not everyone plans to grow and that's okay, but that's a super, um, it's, it's small, but it's big in that. Um, yeah. It's not really like changing your you know, your programming strategy, it's literally just the basics of business. But I just really encourage people to do that. And I do see from time to time, some of our smaller organizations don't necessarily understand or know that they need to do that stuff. And so as they look into it, just dig into it, look into it, get some information. If you have a, you know, a nonprofit resource organization in your community, reach out to them and just say, hey, what are the different statuses that I need to have um, in order to be um, a qualified business in this uh, community because you don't want to get kicked out of an opportunity just for little like technicalities, essentially. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, as an organization, we are definitely currently actively rethinking what this looks like for us. You know, we're, you know, we're looking at, you know, like we have a big day of giving and then, you know, giving Tuesday, things like that, which are really nice. And, you know, a lot of times people feel really good about giving on those days, but the return on investment, you know, business terms isn't is really not there. So so they're fun and they're nice, but but we have to think uh, more strategically. And so we're definitely doing that, looking at 
what does it look like to build those? We keep talking about relationships, but that, that's what that's our core. What does it look like to build those relationships year round? How do we show the attitude of gratitude that pours into these donors so that they feel that, you know, throughout the year and that just keeps them engaged? Rachel talked about how are we letting them, you know, feel seen? We have to, you know, invest in them, right? They're investing in us, invest back in them. Um, so, so that's really what we're rethinking. Then also, you know, our leadership has really been creative and thinking, you know what, we have a lot of skills. We have a lot of experience at the table. How can we bring in revenue? And so they're looking at all the departments in our organization saying, okay, this, you know, you have this grant funding. That's great. Now look, look what you can do in the community to bring in more money. Look, you're the communications department. All right. Are there any other, you know, small businesses, nonprofits who could utilize, you know, what you can bring to the table? Do they need marketing materials made? Do they need, you know, some help with videos? Absolutely. We're on board. You know, we are professionals and we can help support other organizations who may not have those resources. And so it's, it's, you know, it is building community, it's relationships. Then also let's be more strategic about bringing in money that is um, a little bit more stable than just counting on those, you know, two days a year. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Totally. So, so I'm curious, um, what do you wish your donors knew uh, and the community in general knew about your fundraising efforts? And, and if they knew those things, how do you think that might change the outcomes of what you're trying to achieve? I think, go ahead, Ash, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's an understanding of when we get, you know, donations from individual donors that that money has no strings attached to it. And, and what that means to us is that we can be really responsive and adaptable in the way that we do our work, which is amazing, especially when you're doing work with the community. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, one day something huge happens in your neighborhood or, or you just see small needs and you want to respond. So if we have that funding that doesn't have all these strings attached, like maybe the federal government funding would, we're that allows us to do that. And so literally the money that, that they're, you know, donating directly lets us be those people on the ground next to our, you know, with our community to fulfill those needs. And I think that maybe if more people knew that, um, they might be more interested in, in giving. Yeah, I think I totally agree. Like that ability to pivot quickly we've seen, if we've learned nothing from the pandemic, we've seen how important it is for organizations to be able to, to just respond quickly because they know the needs for the most part, a lot more than somebody who's a few steps removed from it does. And that's not any disrespect to them. It's just, everyone's in a different place. What I wish uh, funders knew is really that one, I think there's a narrative that there's too many nonprofits. I I don't know Mm -hmm. if you all hear that, but um, I used to say that too. I used to say that too. Um, and what I've learned is that, especially in the pandemic, that we have small nonprofits that serve very small areas of our community, very specific groups of people, and that's what they do well. Mm. And it's very hard for a larger organization to necessarily have that same level of credibility and trust. So what we've done is found ways to collaborate with those organizations. And so we took this huge risk with this youth and family collective idea. And we went, Stacy and I would go and talk to like our city manager and, and the mayor and, you know, big funders, like what if we all worked together and you funded a big project and we helped manage this project where you would see a huge impact and people were like, ah, that's cute. I've seen collaboration <laughs> before. And then COVID hit and the city of Sacramento remembered those conversations. And we're like, we have this idea of getting like, some training and some youth opportunities together. 
could you guys come up with a program that involves a bunch of these community nonprofits? Cause we want to get money to them and we get, want to get money to their kids. And we created this project called SAC Youth Works and SAC Youth Works was administrative support for organizations and a $500 stipend for youth. The youth co- completed a 40 hour program that those nonprofits crafted and created that was aligned with their mission, but still hit the big check marks that our city of Sacramento wanted to see. And we did that. We were like, we'll do it. We're, we're not taking any admin. We're just going to push all that money back out to the community. So that was like, I think maybe two or $300,000 opportunity, which I mean, for me, I was like, what the heck? I've never had anyone ask me to do that. Um, But then they came back with an over $1 million uh, expansion of that project. Wow. And so, and we have now served um, almost 50 community-based organizations, gotten several million dollars of administrative, unrestricted, unrestricted. Um, administrative funds into these organizations and provided almost a million, maybe even more than a million of stipend dollars to youth, to young people in our community and like 50,000 hours of training. So it's been incredible to see what happens to an organization to manage the collective. I'm just saying that we've, we are now having to uh, I'm so stressed because we have so many opportunities. People are like, we have another idea. We have another idea. Would you guys, can you guys do this? And it's been so successful, but it just took someone to take a chance on this idea of collaboration and having a, a larger vision, but allowing organizations to fit in that vision in a way that was also aligned with their mission and vision. So we were able to kind of strike that balance. And then we maintain all of the, you know, the paperwork, making sure people are turning in forms and have insurance and, you know, their 501c3 status is good. So it funding those collaborative projects looks different than I think our mindset of just like, why don't these organizations collaborate? It's like, no, right. someone has to take ownership of that. So that's yeah. what we did. We just did it. We didn't wait. We didn't wait for the money. We just did it. Um, but it would have been nice had somebody... <laughs> funded it a little bit before we just did it but we had to prove we had to have a proof of concept before somebody would believe in it and now people are believing in it and um, it's been incredibly successful and we've had a much larger impact and a measurable impact if all these organizations were doing their little one-off projects they wouldn't have as much money and we'd have no data we would have no idea of the impact uh, of these funds and so it's been really cool to see how collaboration can work if you've got a backbone organization and you've got some structures in place and you don't get too over prescriptive. You let organizations be who they are. So it's that's funders. Think about it. Think about awesome. it. It's awesome. huge. Yeah. All right. So we're just about out of time. I want to do a couple of quick lightning round questions before we let you two go though. So um, first one, uh, any, any final piece of advice or encouragement you have for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers in, in their journey today? Be brave, speak up, be honest. Shed the fear, use your voice, believe in the power and experience that you have behind you. Awesome. Uh, Best professional development book that you've read uh, and that you'd recommend to to our audience? Oh, there's so many. I have like this pile of books next to me, but (laughs) Ashley and I, Ashley and I really like design. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. I was like, I'm sorry, Ashley. Uh, This was put out by the Stanford D School. And it's really just about how you actually create belonging 
in everything that you do in your organization, oh. in your relationships, in your events. Super, super cool. Um, there's another book called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. And it talks just about how you create events, how you create gatherings that have real meaning, that stick, that aren't just the rubber chicken dinner and the two speeches and the, you know, that kind of thing. So those are two that I would highly recommend. And Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown to think about how we how we get away from the five-year strategic plan junk and do things better. Ashley, what about you? Yeah, yeah. Rachel, Rachel is my book guru. We started our, our little mini book club with Design for Belonging. So I cannot stress that book enough just because, again, we keep saying it, but it is the core of everything that we do. Um, and so I would go there. And then also don't be afraid to look at business books, you know? Let, let's we're professionals. Let's let's see the wisdom from from other you know fields as well. So you know be be diverse in what you're reading. You know yes. I, I like to read about. Let's read about science. Let's read about you know technology because all the trends, all the best practices, you know they have something to speak to us as well. So I'd say yep. diversify. It's yeah. about innovation, startups. Read it. It is for you. There are so many. There's a there's also another book called The Ten Types of Innovation. That is not written for nonprofits, but it's absolutely applicable to how we should be thinking. Awesome. Uh, what, what's the most insightful learning that each of you have had in the last year? You know, I, I, I keep talking about 2020, but since 20, I mean, 2020 just changed the game, flipped things on its head. Um, I think it it's that we have to be bold. Yeah. No time. Yeah. No time. To, no time to waste here. You Mine know? was that there aren't too many nonprofits that that we we have as many nonprofits as people want to start, just like we have with any other type of business. And that we need to rethink what that really means. And how are we the people to say you can't start an organization? We would never say that to somebody running up, a, a, you know, having a business idea at the small business development center. They would never turn them away. So it's the same for nonprofits and we need to step away from that very paternalistic, judgmental, um, problematic way of looking at nonprofit organizations as like, a, you know, trying to suck the blood away from the community. No, they're giving to the community. They care about the community. Yeah, which is exactly it. You know, Pro Pro Youth and Families is a nonprofit and the Youth and Family Collective is an initiative of Pro, right? But mm. now the, the Youth and Family Collective has grown. It's much larger than Pro. And that's the power of community at the table coming together. So it's like, you know, we can be competitive on our own to be more innovative, more creative, but but as a community, we're together. So that's mm-hmm. the beauty of the collective. Yep. Roy, she said nonprofits are trying to suck the blood out of the community. I've never heard that before. I think our next show should be nonprofit <laughs> vampires. <laughs> oh, there we go. We'll see you well, in October. Walking Dead. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Um, before we let you go, if if the listener wants to connect, how, how what's the best way for people to reach you? Yes, yeah, check out our website, which is proyouthandfamilies.org. You'll see info about Pro, you'll see info about the Youth and Family Collective. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Also, you can check out Rachel and I both. We're on LinkedIn. So um, personally and and the and Pro Youth and Families is on there. So yeah, come find us. Yep. Awesome. Thank you again. This was a really enjoyable conversation. I appreciate being here. Thanks for having us today. It was amazing. Yes. Thank you both. Thank you.
Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.